Chapter Twelve of The Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twelve. Sleeping all day, even if there is nothing to do, becomes tiresome. The men have said all that there is to be said in an ordinary way to those with whom they are living in close quarters in the hut. They know one another by heart. They might say something more but they know the answer beforehand. If a man is forced to open his lips, it is only to say what he said yesterday. They have listened to one another's watches. They have looked at the calendars engraved on one another's oblong brass tobacco boxes. One man lights a pipe and leans out over the edge of the bunk, and another makes a remark about the weather. It is the same weather as the day before, and there is nothing different to say about it today. At last it is four o'clock, the hour of the afternoon meal, and this is not eaten at the common table. No, each man is now the guest at his own provision chest, and this meal is something special. It is not merely taking a piece of bread and smearing butter upon it and eating it. No, it is like going away on a little visit to one's home far away in the south. It is probably a mother or a wife who has packed the chest, and a breath of home seems to rise from it when the lid is raised. One feels almost shy because others are present, and so one turns one's back to as many as possible, and bending down tries to imagine oneself alone. When Peter Jusansa looks into his, he sees a large wooden butter tub in which the yellow butter is sweating tiny drops of water over the salt that is mixed with it. His wife has filled the same tub for many a Lofoten expedition, but now she lies in the churchyard, and this time it is his daughter who has pressed the butter down until it is as hard as a rock. She is the daughter who is expecting a baby some time this winter, but the fellow has gone off and left her, and she probably shed many a tear while she packed the chest. Beside the butter tub there is a large cheese, which his wife, Birgitta, had managed to make before she took to her bed, and as he cuts a slice of the cheese with his sheath-knife and lays it on the bread, it seems to him that, after all, Birgitta and he are not altogether separated from one another. And then the big man with a stuffed grey beard makes some remark about the weather, just so that no one may imagine that he is in low spirits. Under the cheese is a layer of flat bread, hard and soft, which is real Christmas fare when one puts treacle on it. And there are bags of brown and white sugar for coffee, and then salt meat and sausage and brawn and such like. In the small compartment in the chest there are little bottles of medicine, one of Hoffman's anodyne for colds, another of rigabalsam for the stomach, and a third of spirits of camphor for wounds. Then there is a little bottle of turpentine for pain in the chest, and beside it lies the prayer-book, which his daughter has placed there because her mother would have done so. Every little thing has its separate odour, which mingles with those of the rest of the things, and creates this atmosphere of home and care for his welfare. And with every man it is the same. They bend down and retire into solitude. Scarcely a word is uttered. They are all far, far away from Lofoten and the storm. They are among their own people, and are happy. 
Eleazar's hilla sits silently munching, bending down now and again over his chest, and feeling all the time that he is with Berit and the children. He certainly would not beat his wife now. They are the very best of friends. Little Olea, who is four years old, has put in one of her doll's garments for father. She had cut two little holes in it, and told him to remember to put it on if he had a cold in his chest. He takes it up carefully, in his rough hands, watching to see that no one is looking at him, but to his eyes it is not merely a bit of rag, but a picture of the little girl herself. He eats sparingly of the sausage and dried meat, thinking it would not be a bad thing if he had some left to take home to the others in the spring. The wind is blowing outside and in through the cracks in the walls, but the men do not notice it now for they have themselves come out of the arctic ocean as it were and are as tough and hard as seaweed there they sit digging their sheath knives into the butter that their wives have churned and the bread that they had got on credit but it will be just as well not to eat more than they need considering what the fishing seems likely to be christaver and his son bend over the same chest which is big enough for two the fair, close-clipped boyish head beside the curly hair of the grown man. The contents of the chest bring to both the thought of the same woman, and they wonder how she is getting on. Occasionally an eye steals a glance at a neighbor, for in a way you may judge of a man by his provision chest. Is it poverty that makes Aunt Osan eat lard instead of butter with his bread, or is he going to stint and save and put by something there too? Henry Robin sits clearing his throat softly and smiling all over his face, but then he has such a pretty wife that she is the talk of the countryside, and he is with her now. He likes everything that she had thought of putting in for him. It certainly does not matter being only a poor man when you have such a clever wife. Ulaus Truen belongs to Peter Susanza's crew. It is probably only in a spirit of boastfulness that he makes an exhibition of delicacies on the lid of his chest, for he does not touch them, but only munches bread and treacle. He probably means to take it all home again with him, and perhaps sell it at the fair. Who knows? There is one man who crouches down in front of his chest, and that is Cornelis Gumon. He has neither mother nor wife to manage for him up on the little mountain farm, but only his old half-blind father and the little sister who is not yet old enough to be confirmed. There was not much for her to choose from, poor little thing, when she was going to pack the chest for her brother, for they had had no milk just at Christmas time, and had nothing to make either cheese or butter with. If there are no fish this winter, it will go badly with that little farm before the year is over. Lars had already guessed how matters stood with Cornelis but he did not like to offer him anything out of their own chest. His father, however, had also guessed the state of affairs, for he now took a large lump of butter out of their own tub, and cut off half a goat's milk cheese, and then whispered to Lash, Put that into Cornelis's chest when he goes out. Henry Robin was the first to finish, and he banged down the lid of his chest and turned the key and then rising stretched his arms straight up above his head and took seven deep breaths through his nose. "'Is that good for the health, too?' asked Elesus. "'It's good for the lungs,' Henry replied. 
Lush, said Petr Sansa. Will you row over for a barrel of water when you've finished? Yes, said Henry Rabben. That water in the creek over here is nothing but filth. It'll make us ill. It was not Lars who had to do the cooking that day, but any one may send a scory anywhere he like. He was at the age when a lad likes to rank as a man, but when the men treat him only as a boy. Go do that, Lars. Fetch that, Lars. It was the same refrain from morning till night, and a scory must put up with it. He quite dreaded returning from an errand performed. There was always another waiting for him. On this occasion he had to put on his sea-boots and oilskins and start off again. The wind beat in his face, and he had to tie his southwester on. There was a deafening noise from the sea, and from the vessels and boats that tugged at their chains and ropes. He jumped down into the boat and began to fight his way through the storm-lashed sea to the mainland to fill his water-barrel. He had to pass vessels that were almost invisible in the flying foam and spray, and at one moment dipped their anchor-chain deep into the sea, and at the next jerked it up so violently that, if the little boat had been rowing past, it would have been flung into the air and capsized. Even here in the bay, Lars had waves to contend with, one of which would have been enough to dash the little boat to pieces against the side of a vessel. At last he reached the beach at the foot of the precipitous mountain wall, from which the fishing station out in the sea looked like some horrible animal wallowing in white foam beneath the dark sky. High up in the air two eagles came sailing in over the sea, crying from time to time, and with wings aslant, wheeling in toward the grim rocks. The storm raged on for days, until one morning the fishermen awoke to find that it was calm weather. Out on the banks they found their nets a long way from the place where they had been put out, most of them torn to shreds and tangled up with other nets. This was indeed a good beginning for all their hopes. But then the cod came in. End of chapter 12